This week on Life and Faith. At four o'clock this morning, she woke me up to tell me that the Queen had died. And so I looked at my email. Operation Unicorn had clicked into it's just the code for what different organisations will do when the Queen dies. And so I go home tomorrow, I get back to Aberdeen on Sunday, and then on Monday I have to go down to Edinburgh for a vigil. My first official duty I'll be back for, so that's good. We don't know what's going to make for security 30 years from now. One essay we had to pick a conflict anywhere in the world, Israel, Palestine, whatever you like. I chose my husband's family. Suddenly your drives are selfless instead of selfish. This is Life of Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, this week we were due to bring you an interview with John Stackhouse about his new book on evangelicalism, but we've put that on hold for just a few weeks to bring you something very special. I was excited this week to have scheduled an interview with Scottish theologian John Swinton, but we ended up getting more than we bargained for. John Swinton is highly regarded in disability theology and in spiritual care for people experiencing dementia. And he was in Australia for a large conference for Hammond Care, which is a Christian aged care and dementia care provider. John is, among a whole lot of other things, the Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the School of Divinity, History and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. But especially important for us today, he was recently appointed Chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen in Scotland. The Queen died on the morning John was due to come in. He came in anyway, and it made sense for us to talk with John about that, as well as topics related to his role as royal chaplain. And it turned out to be a timely conversation. John Swinton, it's so good to see you. Thanks for being here. No, thank you for inviting me. Now, I'm speaking to you on the day Queen Elizabeth died. This is a monumental day in, in many ways. Now, you are chaplain to Her Majesty in Scotland. This must be somewhat of a poignant day for you. Yeah, it's a sad day, and I kind of wish I was at home in some ways because it's the kind of thing you want to be with your family for because it's so memorable. Like, but yeah, my my daughter, she's across from me just now. So at four o'clock this morning, she woke me up to tell me that the Queen had died, and so I looked at my email, and uh, Operation Unicorn had clicked into uh, it's just the code for what different organisations will do when the Queen dies. And so I go home tomorrow, uh, I get back to Aberdeen on Sunday, and then on Monday I have to go down to Edinburgh for a vigil. Mm. Uh, my first official duty I'll be back for, so that's good. What shape will that take, the vigil? Uh, I don't know the details yet, but basically it means that the Queen's chaplains, and there's a number of different Queen's chaplains, will just be beside the coffin for both, certainly Monday, perhaps Tuesday as well. Yeah. And then the Queen's Coffin is put on a slow train, which goes down, it will actually probably go from Aberdeen, because she's been living in Balmoral, and just goes slowly down right across the country, from Scotland to England, and then finishes up in London, where the uh, the funeral. Presumably you'll be at that as well. I'm hoping to be. I'm in Denmark next week when I go back to speaking at a conference. But my, my intention or my plan is to be able to get back to London to, to, get, to be there. Tell me about what you described as sadness for this 96-year-old yes, lady. Just give us a, a feel question. for that. Well, I just get the sense it's the kind of like the, the end of an era. And what I mean by that is just, the thing that struck me about Queen Elizabeth, whether you like the royalty or not, mm. 
she was an interesting person, a person of faith, but also a person who held civic duty as really, really important. To place yourself before other people, to have that sense of being in public life and placing yourself with other people is something that's lost. You know, you, you don't really see that if you, if you know if for public figures or even maybe for private people as well. For all of us, that sense that we owe one another something, we owe the state or the country something, that's gone, and that, that's a sadness in itself. Like, and I think she did that very well through her her life, and held together multiple complex tensions in a very kind of honourable and iconic way. It's interesting that. Lots of people have already expressed similar things to what you're saying there. There's this sort of a recognition of something in the way she carried out her duty, this sort of dogged, uh, really quite determined, this sort of dignity to the way she went about things. And she's, she's been through every imaginable thing with obviously a very difficult family situation and so on. But, But also she's ridden through any number of huge changes in her life. And yet she kind of remained somewhat steadfast, completely steadfast, actually, in what she... she, There's something we recognise in that. I think there's something pretty beautiful in that. Mm. that, Because if you look at the way, I mean, just simple things like the way in which truth is portrayed in public life these days. Like, nobody feels they have to tell the truth. Mm. Nobody feels that they have to plan for the future beyond the next four or five years. And just, you know, you've no sense of duty and morality. She held that in place, uh, I think, as an icon. I mean, the way you learn how to be a decent person is by looking at decent people. And she always strikes me as a decent person that, that I've learned a lot from, even though, you know, from a distance until relatively recently. It's true, people recognise that in her, and this is true of all sorts of people, including people who are not at all fans of the royals. Mm-hmm. She did still endear herself to those yeah, people. Yeah, she did. And I think that your point about the things that she's seen, like my mum, she's, uh, how old is she? She's 98. Mm. And she oftentimes says, like, you know, the world I live in today is not the same as the world I was in before. And she's right. Yeah. It's not. There's been so many changes, so many positive changes, so many negative changes, so many wars, so many genocides, all in the space of a lifetime. Like it's, 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 it, I don't know how the Queen processed that, but if my mum, who's a, a seminal generation, processes it as being in a different world, the yeah. Queen was in a different world. But she adjusted well. Yeah, I've often thought that myself, the way she's... I mean, people were saying this morning, she's gone through Prime Ministers from Churchill right through to, well, Liz Trust. Right. Two days, I think, with the <laughs> Prime Minister in place. So it didn't get long right. to get to know her. That's right. But that's a yeah, I mean, the world has changed so much in that time. Yeah. Yeah. I think people also recognising that, that she's just been a constant in everybody's life, obviously from a distance. And I think you feel the ground shift a bit when someone as constant as that disappears. Well, you do. And it's even simple things like, your postage stamps with the mm. Queen's head on, and that will be no more until, well, once this current batch disappears, it'll be somebody else's head in there. So all my life, when I've gone to post a letter, <laughs> sounds trivial, but it means something to me. She's been there on my postage stamps, like, as a symbol of that regal, different way of, of thinking about things. So, yeah, there's a lot of changes that uh, her passing away represents in that sense. Yeah, every time you flip a coin. That's right, yeah. Yeah. How did this role you have as chaplain come about? And what does it involve? The Queen has 10 chaplains in, in Scotland. 
and you're a community actor until you're 70 or until you retire. And then, so when somebody hits 70 or if somebody retires from their position, then the position becomes vacant. Mm. And then the Chapel Royal then, which is the, the group of people who are responsible for the kind of spiritual dimensions of the Queen's uh, existence in Scotland, they decide on who they think might be good candidates for this position. Yeah. And then the Queen makes a decision ultimately uh, as to who she wants to be her chaplain. So they put forward people and then the Queen makes the decision as to whether or not she she wants to, to have that person. And so I was fortunate enough to be uh, somebody that she, she did want. And that involved at least sometimes preaching in the chapel that she or church she would have been in, yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So preaching at Balmoral in Crathish Chapel, which is a little chapel where she used to go to for church every Sunday, state occasions and uh, things like the garden party. So this year the garden party was at Holyrood in Edinburgh and state funerals, all these kind of official occasions. But for the most part, it would be preaching at Balmoral. It would be a regular thing that you have to do. Mm. Everything else would be slightly irregular. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been. It's really an honour for you. You must have... Yeah, my mum was pleased. I bet she was. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have said no. no I, I, I was thinking exactly that. Like, so, so uh, you may be thinking I'm a bit obsessed with my mother. I don't mean to talk about all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't. not surprised you're thinking about her today. Um, the Queen was a person of faith. Um, yeah. Did you have a sense of the nature of that faith? It seemed to be for her more than just part of the kind of the job or the official role? No, it was pretty clear that it was central to uh, who she was, how she saw the world, and, and definitely how she saw her uh, royal duties. She spoke about it very very regularly, very openly, uh, in speeches and talks and public communications, that it was something that was just fundamental to who she was. And I think it also gave her the moral foundation to, to be a dutiful person in the way that they, uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier on. So, yeah, it was very important for her. Do you think she was a lonely person? I don't know. I imagine, well, I always have that in my mind, that picture of uh, her at Philip's funeral. And that, mm. that was because of COVID. Like, but yeah. that isolated figure sitting there, it's kind of indicates that there, there must be a, a loneliness and a sadness of being in that situation, particularly when the person who's been with you for so long is no longer with you. Uh, so I don't know whether she was a lonely person or not, but I imagine she's certainly somebody that's gone through a lot of pain and grief and heartache, and that in itself alienates you from, you know, just normal peacefulness of life. So, yeah. What could you, and perhaps if you'd lived a bit longer, had hoped in this role, like what you could have conveyed to her? What, what do you sort of imagine the chaplain role as giving to someone like her? I think there's, there's different levels of aspects of chaplaincy. So there are domestic chaplains who, who would be dealing directly with her while she's in Balmoral or wherever she is. And then there's other chaplains like myself who are, we, we don't have that kind of intimate relationship that a domestic chaplain would be. So I don't know. I mean, the only thing I guess over time would have been that whatever preaching I did at Crathy's would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And that, that probably would be my, my main direct input. Will you be chaplain to the king now? I think so. Mm. Nobody's actually said uh, one way or the other. But I think technically we are chaplains to the royal household, so it would be the case. Unless Prince Charles, or King Charles rather, decides that he doesn't want chaplains or if he wants a different configuration of chaplains, then who knows. But at the moment I think things will just continue as they are. 
If you were asked to do the sermon at the Queen's funeral, I'm not suggesting you will be, but what message would you be sending to people as they mourn this really significant loss? I would just say, if you want to have a good example of how to live well and to have a moral duty that actually helps to change a country into something that's meaningful, have a look at the life of the Queen. Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with John Swinton, who, among many other things, has been one of the chaplains to Her Majesty the Queen in Scotland. Now, bouncing off his role as chaplain, we wanted to talk about the role of care and the place of spiritual care in a holistic vision of a person. John Swinton has done a lot of thinking about this. So I've heard chaplains in aged care settings, which I know you're very familiar with, Mm -hmm. describe their role as loitering with intent. Uh, looking for ways that they might kind of attend to a person. And I know you've talked to us before about the ways that can work really well and how it certainly takes time to attend to someone in that way. Tell me about that importance of attention in pastoral care. What does it involve, ideally? That's a very good question. Well, the first thing I say is is that probably that way of thinking about chaplaincy doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Because if you go to your manager or you go to the accountants in the hospital facility and say, what do you do? I'd like to with intent. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you have to find a different way of saying what you still are going to do. I don't know. But in practice, there is an element in which that's the case. Because you're, you're looking around to be available and to see things that other people don't have time to see or can't see in that way. So, so central, I think, to chaplaincy is the issue of attention, being able to pay attention to people in a particular way. And I've been doing some work with Hammond Care recently, which is why I'm in Australia, yeah. looking specifically at the issue of carer presence. Just so people know, Hammond Care is a provider yeah. of aged care services and dementia care, these sorts of that's things. That's right. So it, it, Yes, that's exactly what it is. And there's also a lot of innovative dementia care that is very person-centered or focused on individuality. And uh, the project I've been working on is looking at carer presence, because one of the things that came out of the Royal Commission was that there was a problem with carer presence, that mm. people would be with people but at the same time not with them. So they'd be doing tasks and carrying out things, but they'd be distracted on their phones or they'd be talking across people. So you you get good care, perhaps, but there's aspects that are just completely missing from that. And the problem there is that you end up with a culture within which you don't notice that you're neglecting fundamentally important things. And that's when abuse, either conscious or unconscious, begins to emerge. So I've been looking at the issue of of how you can pay attention, how you can be present uh, with people, particularly people with advanced dementia. Uh, and the first dimension of presence is recognition, right? So for people who have a, a highly stigmatized diagnosis like dementia, the temptation is that to name them according to the diagnosis. You know, it's so it's like any big mental health diagnosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, whatever. You become that. Like So yeah. if you have influenza, you don't become the flu. <laughs> but, if, no. but if you have dementia, right. that's what you become that. And everything's Your filtered identity. through that. That's right. So mm. everything that you do is filtered through that. You can't lose your keys anymore because of dementia. You can't do this. It's a dementia. So the first thing you t- in terms of care of presence is calling people by their names. Because yeah. as soon as you do that, sit down with somebody, call them by the names, then that really just pushes the stigma out of the equation and allows you to be present. The second thing would be to recognize the importance of doing tasks, 
but recognize that tasks are always done to people, right? Mm. So if you can, uh, the example I used at the conference I spoke on this week was, you can imagine uh, being in a hospital bed and a nurse is caring for you and doing fantastic things and it's perfect care. And then you suddenly realize that, well, she doesn't really care. That mm. she's thinking about her shopping, but she's doing her job well. Right? So she's present, but at the same time, absent at the same time. And that's the problem that we culturally, we, we, we social media pushes us into mm. this space yes. that we're present, but really not present at all. Um, do you see this sort of capacity for attention, uh, attending to another person, being sensitive to their emotional and spiritual needs as part of kind of a broader human vocation? So pastoral care of the sort you're describing could be applied more broadly in our lives. Yeah, there's a really interesting little piece of video I was watching the other day, but basically the absence of expression experiment, right? So it's with a baby. And so you see this baby with this mother reacting to this mother. They're, they're moving, they're, they're talking, the face is moving, they're, they're, she's, she's, the baby's getting really excited. Then the baby turns away, or the mother turns away and looks back and has an absolute deadpan experience. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And the baby tries all its tricks, like it, 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 <laughs> it laughs at points, it does all of these things, it screams. Eventually it gets more and more frustrated, more and more angry, and, and the distress is so much the mother has to come back again. But it's, it's just such a good illustration of the way in which we are born to be in relationship, that we imitate, that we're always reading one another's faces, reading one another's expressions in that sense. Like. And so good relational spiritual care recognises that, that doesn't just happen with babies, it happens all the time. Like. And so the way you are with somebody, you've got to remember that people are always monitoring you. Mm-hmm. Even if you have advanced dementia, people are monitoring you. They're looking for connection. They're looking for relationships. They're looking for a way to find you. And if you're somewhere else, which is quite easy to be, or worse, if you assume that the person before you has no relational skills, you know, because they maybe have communicational issues, then you're actually inflicting quite significant psychological damage on the person because you're just ignoring, they're not looking for things that, that are clearly there when you have look at things in a bigger relational picture. Yeah, so I, I heard a great line just this week actually about, and it was quoting a psychiatrist, I think, who said, we were born into this life and it remains the case that we are looking for someone who's looking for us. I think that's a lovely That's That's very good. Line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if care work is everyone's work, which I think it should be, like we should be interested in people's uh, lives to that extent, why have these traits always been seen as more suited to women or more female work? I'm a mental health nurse, and my wife is a registered general nurse, and she always talks about herself as being a real nurse. Mm-hmm. because she looks after people in a particular way and because she has uh, particular clinical skills that enable her to help people to get better. Whereas mental health nurses, we just hang around and talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of true. Um, but it, but it's therapeutically true. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I guess people are drawn to different aspects of care. I mean, culturally, the expectation is that women will be drawn to care in situations. Mm-hmm. And so even just to stick with the, the issue of nursing and that, yeah, people oftentimes used to say to me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a nurse. And they would say, oh, a male nurse. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough. Like you're a male mechanic. <laughs> exactly. So there's a kind of culture mm. that assumes that certain jobs are, are gender specific and certain jobs are not, and, and care is one. 
but I don't necessarily think that's because men are bad carers because within nursing there's lots of people that are really good but the expectation is what the issue is like so more females are perhaps drawn to that than males would be drawn to that but that's just my guess I don't have an in-depth uh, so do women need to care less or men more <laughs> so there's ways, many ways in which you get into trouble after this question. <laughs> exactly. We all have to care more. Women shouldn't be feel that they're forced into any particular role within society. And men shouldn't feel that they're excluded from any particular role in society. Like it's not a, a wet thing to do to, to be a male carer. It's a really good thing to do. It's, it's something that real men do. You know what I mean? So I think breaking down some of these gender barriers is really important to free people to do what they think they can do best. Now, we've had widespread disruption from the pandemic. It's made caring work in homes very difficult. Anyone from nurses to teachers to parents have felt the strain of this. Got any reflections on where we go from here and whether or not we might be able to build back in a better way. Maybe we've, you know, we can reset in the way we think about the caring work that people do. Hmm. One thing we've got to realise is that the amount of damage that the pandemic has done to us relationally. Yeah. That experiment I was telling you about, if you take that into an aged care context where you're dealing with people who have PPE all the time, no facial experience, you, you're only going to look at your eyes, you can imagine how painful that must be, quite apart from the separation that people from their, their loved ones, how painful that must be just to communicate, not to be able to hear because you've got mm. a mask on and so on. So all these communicational things are really important. But there's another dimension for 18 months of the pandemic. I basically lived in my office at home. Like, mm. So was like my life was, because my university was, was closed, my life was bedroom, living room, office. Yeah office, living room, bedroom. And there was not much you could do. And at one point, we couldn't even go outside. So, so it was pretty Gosh. horrible, which is not good for your mental health, I discovered. Mm. But then recently, we've been able to travel. Uh, I've, I've been traveling again. And I went to the States a couple of months ago, and everybody was shaking hands. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I like this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, mm. like, something's going wrong here, because one of the most important ways of showing to somebody that well, you don't have a knife in your hand, which is where they can origins from, but for something that you, you trust them, that you care for them, and that you're happy to have that contact, has been taken from us, really. Or at least our neighbours become, become suspicious of our neighbours because yes. they're a source of infection. Yeah. So I think we need to recognise all of these things, the way that there's some relational normalities have broken down, and think seriously and intentionally about what post-pandemic care looks like and how we can perhaps learn from some of the things that came out of the pandemic and the, the importance of relationships, the importance of connections between institutions and families and so on, how important that really was, but also to, to begin to build back better in terms of the kind of relational disconnection that's gone on there and realise the broken bits that they need to be healed. John, it's interesting to me that healthcare in recent years uh, has paid more attention to not just physical health, but seeing a person more holistically and that spiritual health is something to pay attention to. Is this something you've noticed as well? Um, you're obviously heavily involved in this area. Yeah, years ago, when would it be, 2000, I wrote a book called Spirituality and Mental Health Care. And the subtitle title was uh, Rediscovering the Forgotten Dimension. Yeah. And of course, since then, it's been well remembered. Like, so there's a whole literature around the issue of spirituality and health and mental health. So I think spirituality is on the horizon. The problem is nobody seems to know what it is. 
yeah. Right. So you read through reams of literature, and everybody's got a different definition, and everybody's got a different way of thinking about it. But the way I think about that is that doesn't invalidate spirituality. Uh, it does make it a thin concept, makes, makes it a kind of difficult and uncomfortable concept. But at the same time, it raises people's consciousness to the need to look beyond the standard clinical paradigm. So even if your definition is as vague as a sense of meaning and purpose and hope and value and for some people God, that's not a bad thing. It may be vague, but it's not a bad thing because it leads to good actions. Yeah. And so it raises your consciousness, that, well, you're a meaningful person. Like, okay, so I'm, I'm looking after this part of your body, but actually if I've got this mantra of meaning, purpose, value and hope in my mind, then it reminds me that it's not just your ankle that's the problem. It's the whole of you that's, that I have to recognize. So you think that is happening more? In, uh, that's a, a, we've made advances in this area. It definitely is. Within, yeah. Certainly within health and social care, it's on the agenda in a much more powerful way than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Well, sort of related to that, though, is that as societies, especially in the West, become more and more secular and the no-religion figures continue to rise, is spiritual health... Decline? Or what's happening with spiritual health? What are the and what are the signs of that? Do you think? Well, there's two things I'd, I'd say to that. The first is that it's only within the West that religion is declining. Yes. Right. So there's something about the way in which we structure our Western societies, understanding of our personhood as individuals, understanding of science and religion and the concepts that makes it this a particularly difficult place for people to believe in certain things. If you go to other parts of the world, in Africa, Korea, China, certain parts of China. It's a completely different story. Like. Yes. So you've got to be careful that you, when you were talking in these conversations that we're not overly Eurocentric. Sure. And worse, we don't actually spiritually colonise the world by saying what happens here is actually what happens everywhere. I mean, it's not what happens everywhere. Yeah. But the issue of spirituality is also... I say, I say it's, it's, it's less clear, but there's actually some really interesting evidence to suggest that we're hardwired for spiritual experience. Mm. Right? So my friend, my colleague, Aberdeen, David Hay, he, he, he wrote a book years ago called The Spirit of the Child. And in that, he did a, an experiment with children. He had a hypothesis that children are hardwired for spiritual experience. Uh, and he did this very interesting piece of quality research, and he discovered, not surprisingly, children have a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of that which is beyond, and a yep. desire to reach out and connect with others. And he calls this relational connectedness, uh, relational consciousness, rather. Mm. That, you know, this inherent desire to reach out beyond where you are. And I think that kind of spirituality, when you take that into uh, a health and social care context, is really, really important because you're looking for connection, but you're looking for it at a spiritual level. So it may be that people are not necessarily overtly religious in that sense, but they're looking for things uh, temporal and a transcendent, particularly in times of crisis, they're looking beyond that which they already have. And that's one of the reasons why religion can be very helpful psychologically at the end of life, for example, because it answers questions that psychology can't. Yeah. Big question that, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to and why? How do you answer them when you've only got three months to live? And that's where the, the religious questions begin, or responses, begin to have a different poignance. How would you describe what true health is? Well, we live in a highly medicalized society, right? So the biomedical model is, is the way that we think about things. And it's almost impossible to think about health without first thinking about medicine. It just comes into our mind. And the way that we often think about health is the absence of illness. 
right? So you're either well or you're not well. And if you're not well, then you've got to get pushed back to here, which makes it almost impossible to live with a chronic illness because you're always ill. Mm-hmm. So I think that health proper is to be enabled to actualize your goals, your dreams, your hopes within the parameters of your situation, even in the midst of really difficult situations. So if you're living with a, an enduring mental health challenge, at one level you could say, well, I'm just going to be ill forever. Or at another level you could say, we've got to find meaning here. We've got to find purpose. We've got to find a way of living well even here. And that, that's where, I mean, there's a whole movement within psychiatry, for example, called the recovery movement, which looks at how can you be in the midst of even psychotic experience but still be in recovery and it's discovering yourself in the midst of difficulties. Your Christian faith would say something to that as well if, for people who were to adopt that because, you, you know, it's always about kind of a hopefulness and a meaning even in the, the, exactly. the trying circumstances of life. Well, my Christian faith would say that the point of health is not simply your own personal well-being. To find your, the proper point of health is to be in right relationship with God. And that can happen in whatever things you're going through. You can find and search for the right relationship with God in the midst of that and, and enable people to help you to find that in the midst of that. And that's where you find your comfort, that's where you find your hope, and that's ultimately where you find your health. And what's interesting there is that you can be, you know, a really most fantastic sports person or the richest accountant and be really unhealthy, and you can be somebody who's dying at the end of their life and be profoundly healthy. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks today to John Swinton for speaking with us on a sad day for him and many others and for fitting us into a packed schedule while he was here in Australia. John has written a number of books, notably on a theology of disability and spiritual care for people experiencing dementia. His book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, is very well regarded. We'll put a link to some of those books in the show notes. If you can think of someone who would appreciate this episode, please do send them a link to share it and leave us a rating or review. That will help swell the life and faith audience. Next week. I think what we find somewhat mesmerizing about our screens, I think there's a couple dimensions of it, but one is that these are personalized devices that are optimized to make us feel attended to. My phone, in fact, I have to be careful how I refer to it because it is sitting here, though I turned it on to airplane mode. But there's a set of words that if I said them, it's like always listening and ready to say, oh, hey, Andy, how can I help? 